This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. So, case number 42 of the Book of Serenity, Book of Peace. Nanyo in the Water Jug. <clears throat> By the way, there's three parts to this. There's the introduction, there's the main case, and there's the verse. So, the introduction was written by the compiler of this book. He goes, uh, washing the meal bowls, pouring water into the jug. These are all Dharma teaching and Buddha work. Carrying firewood and transporting water. These are nothing but supernatural deeds and miraculous functions. Why don't you understand the actions that emanate light and shake the earth? That's the introduction. The case. A monk asked the national teacher Chu of Nanyo, what is the essential body of Arakana Buddha? The national teacher said, pass me the water jug. The monk passed him the water jug. The national teacher said, put it back where it was. The monk asked again, what is the essential body of Arakana Buddha? The national teacher said, the old Buddha is long gone. That's the end of the case. And then the verse. By the way, the verses, verses on koans are kind of like um, another master's understanding of the case. It's kind of like a poem to sum up their understanding. The verse, birds fly in the sky, fish stay in the water. They have forgotten rivers and lakes, have acquired their will in clouds and sky. If you have a single thread of doubting mind, you are already a thousand miles away from what you are facing. How many can appreciate the benevolence received and requited? Okay, so that's it. That's what we've got to work with today. All right. So I'm going to start with uh, what might seem a little indirect, but uh, hopefully it'll relate at some point for you. Uh, a paper I was reading, a research paper, published in the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Sciences, Professor of Psychology uh, Ezekiel Morsella of San Francisco State University. He apparently took on the question of what consciousness is. No small question, right? So what is consciousness? And came up with a kind of bleak view, according to his proposition. He says it's pretty much nothing at all. Pretty much nothing at all. Never mind, uh, he says, the five characters controlling your thoughts, you barely control them. It's the unconscious that is really in charge. Okay? So the article says, Marcella and his colleagues came up with something called the passive frame theory. And their provocative idea goes like this. 
nearly all of your brain's work is conducted in different lobes and regions at the unconscious level. Completely without your knowledge. When the processing is done and there is a decision to make or a physical act to perform, that very small job is served up to the conscious mind, which executes the work and then flatters itself that it was in charge the whole time. Okay, the article goes on. The conscious you, in effect, is like a not terribly bright CEO whose subordinates, whose subordinates do all the research, draft all the documents, then lay them out and say, sign here, sir, and the CEO does and takes all the credit. The information we perceive in our consciousness is not created by conscious thought, Marcella said in a statement accompanying the release of the paper, nor is it reacted to by conscious processes. Consciousness is the middleman, and it doesn't do as much work as you think. The article continues, there are deep evolutionary reasons for things to work that way. Humans, like all animals, operate as parsimoniously as possible. If we could be run entirely by our reflexes, reflexes and instincts with no conscious thought at all, we would. There's a reason you don't stop to contemplate whether you should pull your hand off the hot stove and instead simply do it. Consciousness, in that case, would simply slow things down. Not in charge. Not aware. Our conscious thought is only a sliver of what we're aware of. And from an evolutionary point of view, as he says, as the article says, it makes sense that most of experience remains outside of our awareness. So so how much of our awareness, how much of reality are we aware of? Isn't it? It's an interesting thought. How much is going on that we're not aware of? So what does this have to do with the Zen, right? Zen practice. In, in simple terms, Zen, one teacher said, Zen is the practice of making the invisible visible. Making what's invisible visible. Becoming aware of how much of the time we operate unconsciously. Um, some people have heard me say this. Yasutani Roshi, who is in the founder of our school of Zen in Japan, he, he during introductory lectures, he would take a ballpoint pen and he would hold it up and he would say something like, uh, if this pen represents your mind, then the ball tip, the very tip, the ball at the end of the point, is your intellect. Your intellectual mind, your conscious intellectual mind. And yet there's this whole other part of the pen that you're not aware of, that the ordinary person is not aware of, unconscious to. And so, in a way, this is what our Zen practice is really about, is becoming more and more conscious of our minds, of the world. Because most of us live our lives through a habit. Like, the unconscious, as the article 
points out, so tells us that these processes go on outside of awareness. But I think even our conscious selves put into place ways that reinforce unconscious behavior. Our conscious selves reinforce unconscious behavior through habit, through establishing habit over and over again. It's kind of like we're all running a computer program of sorts, or many, I would say many computer programs. So what are, what are the languages of these computer programs? What, are, what, are, what, is, what, is the, what is the script that's being run? There's different scripts. I'd say there's the script of bias. There's the script of... Um, there's a script of uh, assumption. There are scripts that are running unconsciously that we've put into place. Uh, like wanting to please other people. Wanting to uh, be a success. Um, can you think of some that maybe you're semi-conscious of? Because there's a middle ground too. This kind of foggy territory. There's things that we're aware of, but we don't really want to acknowledge in ourselves. This sort of gray territory. I think Freud call it, called it the semi-consciousness or something like that. Does anybody remember Freud? <laughs> it's, it's kind of middle ground. The thing uh, that I think is important about recognizing these processes is, the, the important thing is that we recognize that these processes that are happening deplete us. This is what sucks our energy. They deplete us. Most of us go through our day in that way. We wake up, we get going, and we immediately start to deplete because we're running scripts. And I would say that what we're doing is living, for people that know physics, we're living in a way that's kind of what I would call centrifugal centrifugal force, meaning we're spinning out from the core. Spinning out, the energy depletes huh? as we go through our day, right? And so no wonder we need caffeine, right? We need stimulants. We try to re- replenish, but actually depletes us all the habits that we try to get back some of that energy, taking vitamins, even though we don't need them, right? Some hope that will get our energy back. So it's, I was thinking about this, it's no wonder why people burn out. Because we're running these scripts, constantly, constantly running, spinning out, spinning out, spinning out. And so Zen practice is really about recognizing what are these unconscious ways that we are doing this and recreating this over and over again, lost in this loop of habit, this lost, these lost um, habits that continually go over and over and over again. And so if our ordinary life is centrifugal, 
I would characterize Zen practice as the opposite. Does anybody know from Physics 101, what is the opposite of centrifugal? Thank you. Centripetal. Centripetal. Centripetal force. Sending energy back to the core. Right? Spinning it back inwards. That's what... That's what this practice is about. That's why formal Zen practice is important to my mind. What I mean by that is, um, is formal practice, meaning the Zendo, meaning the community, meaning Sushin practice, retreat practice. Formal Zen practice is important because we're stepping out of the routine. We're stepping out of our script. Right? We're coming in here very consciously. It's not something we do uh, that often. And so formal Zen practice runs like cross-grain to the habits of our life. Like we come in here, we gather our limbs together as much as we can. We're gathering the energy The hands come in. If we can sit on the floor, the limbs come in. But even if not, the mind comes inward. It's it's a cross-grain to the outward spinning energy. This is why we do formal practice. Even even in chanting, right? Even in chanting, at the end of you'll notice at the end of each chanting service, we return the merit. To Shakyamuni Buddha, to Manjushri Bodhisattva, Avalokita Bodhisattva. We return the merit. It's like people go, why do these guys need the merit? Like, aren't they already kind of good? You know? What do they need the merit for? I need some merit, right? But we have to keep sending it back to the core. Who, because who really is Shakyamuni Buddha anyway? Who is Buddha? We think of this person outside of ourselves, yeah, yeah, okay, then it becomes spinning it out, we're sending it outwards. But if we remember, Buddha means one who is awake. We all are Buddha, sending it back to us. This is returning the merit. So even in our chanting, we are acting in a centripetal way, bringing us back. Of course, like anything, Zen practice, formal Zen practice, can be co-opted. It can be co-opted by the habitual mind. It can be, well, here's a great stage. This is like a blank canvas, right? It's quiet, it's still, right? So the habitual mind goes, woohoo! <laughs> Time to spin out. So this is why it's important to come in over and over again through that practice to return. Return to the breath. Return to the koan. Return to the present moment awareness over and over and over again. Not buying into that spinning out. From the moment we step into the zendo, we're we're cutting off from habit. It becomes more difficult if you live in a zen center, if you if you practice here daily, because it becomes, it, again, it can become 
enlisted, it can become co-opted, enlisted into the habit mind. So people that uh, practice here often or are here in training, uh, we have to be aware of making zazen just another habit. Okay. So what does this have to do with the case today? Let's take a look. The monk, who's our fall guy, right? This poor monk. <laughs> he goes to Master Chu. By the way, this master, um, Master Chu of Nanyo, was a Dharma heir, a Dharma successor of the sixth patriarch, uh, Wineng. And so he's very early in the Tang dynasty, very early. And I don't remember the whole story, but somehow he was invited by the emperor of the time to uh, teach at the court. And like most teachers, refused because he knew the you know the the uh, what was trying to be done on one level was authentic practice, but another level he knew that when politics get mixed up with practice, it can be um, it leads to no good. So this master Nanyo or master Chu of Nanyo was the national teacher, meaning he eventually said yes. He said yes, but he. Uh, if you read some of the stories, it's not like he just kind of gave in. I often wonder, you know, I think about American politics, and was it was it Billy Graham who was sort of the president to, I mean, the minister to, who, who did he start with, Nixon, or was it Kennedy, or was it, like, it was way Nixon. back, wasn't it? Nixon? Yeah. And, and then Ford, and then uh, Reagan, and or Carter, Reagan. I don't, I don't know how far he went up, but pretty much to Clinton, right? Clinton and Bush, maybe Bush too as well. I, I, I wonder if how he used his, his influence in there. I mean, imagine the President of the United States calls you and, and wants your counsel. Right? And you're a, you're a man of the cloth. <laughs> what do you say? In the end, he said, don't get involved in politics. What's that? In the end, he said, don't get involved in politics. Yeah. <laughs> the son didn't take his advice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I wonder, too, if there's that question of uh, somebody's going to say yes. Mm. And so do you take it on yourself thinking that you will do it right or better? Yeah. Or assume that maybe someone else will do it worse? Mm. Heavy, a heavy role to play. So, imagine this teacher, you know, the emperor is coming to him <laughs> for guidance. And, you know, I heard actually that, I think I mentioned this once before, that Trump has somebody on the national, what is it, the nuclear advisory board or something that's a Buddhist. Have you heard about this? There was an no, article in the news. Yeah, there's an article. Check it out. Um, he actually has somebody in the cabinet. I don't know if they're they're not cabinet level, but they're they're an advisor who's a Buddhist expert on nuclear pr- proliferation, etc. Can you imagine if Trump had a Buddhist uh, <laughs> advisor? <sighs> What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but a more expert liberation. Yeah, but this this intersection of politics and and the Dharma. It's hard to it's hard to walk around. It's hard to. Yeah. Well, we won't get into that. I'll walk around it right now. Okay, so this monk says to Master Chu, what is the essential body of Varyakana, Varyakana Buddha? So it can be helpful. What is Varyakana Buddha? Uh, Varyakana Buddha is often depicted in esoteric Buddhism. Um, not so much in Zen, uh, but it is in the Mahayana. It is a Buddha, one of, I think, five Buddhas. And is the cosmic Buddha, the 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 body the body of the Buddha that emanates light. I think the name means something uh, like uh, light, the light of the sun, something like that. What is the the universal Buddha, the cosmic Buddha? You know, Shakyamuni Buddha is this man and time and space, right? This is Varyakana Buddha. What is the universe, this monk says. What is what is this universe? What is this infinite light? The master says, pass me the water jug. So he passes him the water jug. The monk says, or then he says, pass it back. Put it back. So he does. And then the monk says again, what is, what is the Varakana Buddha? And the master says, the Buddha is long gone. The Buddha is long gone. Have you heard of the phrase, what is most close to us is difficult to see? What is closest to us is the most difficult to see. What did the monk miss? When I was a kid, um, I forget where it comes from, but when somebody did a somebody said a joke or some quip or something, right, and uh, somebody didn't get it, you'd go, Nyeow. right? So I guess I guess the master Chu could have went Nyeow. instead of the long the Buddha is long gone. Right? What did he miss? Well the pointer or the introduction, I think, shows us. But remember, the introduction says, washing the meal bowls and pouring water into the jug. These are all Dharma teachings and Buddha work. Carrying firewood and transporting water, these are nothing but supernatural deeds and miraculous functions. Why don't you understand the actions that emanate light and shake the earth? So how is it that washing bowls and carrying firewood are all Buddha work? What what does that mean? You know, lots of people these days sort of pine for a simpler life. Like the, what is it, the, um, the tiny house movement, right? We've got one of those. Um, or the, uh, the, the farming there's like a kind of a farming movement, getting back to the land, getting our hands dirty, right? I think these are all attempts. Uh, camping, going camping. When you go camping, you know, you're, you're put in direct contact 
you're, you're more direct. Things are stripped down to the essentials, to the bare essentials. Why do people want that? What are people longing for in that experience? To live more in touch. Less complicated. This is what happens in Sashin practice. We strip away all of the extras and just bring it down to the essentials. And yet, even though we try to do that, I think people that have done retreat know how even in those most basic elements, those essential elements, how the mind spins worlds upon worlds upon worlds, making complications of the most simple things. People have done Sashin, can you relate to that? Yeah. We get obsessed about the meals or the how somebody's breathing next to us or right? We we spin off tons, you know, just universes. It's a beautiful thing in a way, how the mind can create these universes, these worlds. The mind is so complex. And so this simplicity. The simplicity. Pass me the water jug. Pass me the water jug. Put it back. You see what Nanyo is doing? Master Chu Nanyo is doing. Can you see it? Can you kind of get a sense of it? What is most direct? Pass me the water jug. Okay, put it back. See, the monk is going, what is this universal Buddha? What is this Buddha of eminent light? The water jug. So, but the thing is, here's here's one thing that I just want to warn people about, which is, I've noticed in Zen, especially in Zen people, People that have been practicing for a long time can often mistake this simplicity as all there is. We can, we, if we're not careful, we can get into this idea that because we hear it, we hear this phrase, just wash the dishes, right? When you're doing the dishes, just wash the dishes. Just drink the the cup of tea. Just sweep the floor. Right? In other words, merge with that activity. Become that activity. Right? This is, this is what, uh, in some ways, Zen practice is about. And yet, it's not the only thing that non, this teacher, Master Chu, is, is pointing out. He's pointing to something much more profound. Much deeper. I mean, for, for a lot of us, that is pretty darn profound to just sweep, right? Because we're lost in these worlds. That is, that itself is a lofty goal of practice. And I don't want to discount that. When you're doing your activities to completely become those activities. And yet, this is not where it ends. The Buddha, as I was telling somebody recently, just a few minutes ago, in interview, 
This is not why the Buddha, as somebody once said it, left his family. He, remember, he left his family. He left his life. He spent six and a half years doing ascetic practices and then finally awakened. He didn't simply awaken to be present. This, this is selling the Dharma short. It's not just about being present in what you're doing. That would be misunderstanding the Dharma. And this is what I'm afraid is out there more and more, is it's just about that. The Buddha's realization was much more profound. What did he realize? What did the Buddha realize? What, this, what is the Buddha's world? What is, the, what is t- this master true? What is his world? What is the world that he's presenting? What is the world that Bodhidharma is presenting? Or Master Joshu, when he said, Mu. What is the world that they're presenting? Well, to get a sense of it, we'll end soon, by the way, we're almost out of time, but to get a sense of it, just a brief quote from Master Dogen. Master Dogen said, I came to realize that my mind is none other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. I came to realize that my mind is no other than the wide earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Mountains and rivers, the great wide earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Came to realize. It's not a metaphor. This is not a metaphor. Okay, this is, this is direct reality. Practice is not about metaphor. He's not saying my mind is like mountains and rivers. My mind is like the wide earth. My mind is like stars. No. He says his, the mind is mountains and rivers. The mind is the wide earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The mind is the water jug. Your mind is this floor, this cushion. The person sitting across from you. I know it's it's like hard to believe, right? It's like, what the hell are you talking about? But this is this is why the Dharma is so steep. It's asking us all to realize that. Don't settle for metaphor. Don't settle for uh, just becoming one or more present. Yes, that's important. That's the function. But unless we realize the essence that you are the water jug. This is what Master Nanyo is saying. What is Varyukana Buddha? Pass me the water jug. Right here. This is it. You. Okay. So we end on time. Let me just wrap up with the verse. Oh, by the way, so the introduction says, these are nothing but supernatural, these are nothing but supernatural deeds and miraculous functions. Why don't you understand the actions that emanate light and shake the earth? 
shake the earth. When you are walking, guess what? The earth shakes. The earth shakes every time you take a step. Blink your eyes. The earth shakes. The verse goes, Birds fly in the sky, fish stay in water. They have forgotten rivers and lakes. They have forgotten rivers and lakes. I take that to mean, what concepts are there for... Does the bird, does a bird have a concept of the sky or of the universe? Does a fish have a concept of water? Have, they have acquired their will in clouds and sky. If you have a single thread of the doubting mind, in other words, if even as, as affirming faith and mind says, even slight distinctions made set earth and heaven far apart, right? Even tiniest sliver of separation and we're in dualistic thinking. And so doubt becomes this way of reinforcing this sense of separation. So even if a single thread of doubting mind, you are already a thousand miles away from what you're facing, how can we appreciate the benevolence received and requite it or repay it? Benevolence, another word for benevolence, I think, is compassion. Benevolence. Well, true compassion in Zen comes from non-separation, the realization of non-separation. Not just merging with things that we love or people that we love, but what would it be like to completely lose yourself? What would, what would happen if... You experience that. This is what Master Nanyo is pointing to the monk when he says, pass me the water jug. Inviting him into this world. So I'm one minute over. So why don't we stop there and we'll recite the four Bodhisattva vows.